A game of rugby takes 80 minutes. That's 4,800 seconds. But it only takes one to win a scrum, to steal a line out, make a break and score a try. One second for a hero to become a legend, for one team to become champions. And it's their line-out that creates the opportunities to score their tries, and that's exactly what happened. He goes wide, and he finds a winger. Oiderman, he's faster than a bald man's haircut. Oiderman, and he gets the try. What a heartbreaker. Welcome to MLR Kickoff, episode 69 with your hosts, Dan Power and Pete Steinberg. Well, folks, we have an absolute bumper show coming your way today as we are joined by, well, a legend in multi-sports now, started in football, moved to wrestling. Now he finds his home in rugby, John Bradshaw Layfield. JBL, can I go JBL? Is it John now? You've, you've hung up the, uh, the tights? I get called a lot of things. I was a bad guy in wrestling, so I, got, I really got called a lot of things. So JBL or John is two of the best things I can be called. Either one works for me. I'll slip between both, I'm sure. But uh, appreciate you joining the show, brother. And we're going to jump into everything in, all about your career, up to the rugby stuff and uh, also the professor, Pete Steinberg. Uh, I've had to keep him on, uh, on control all week as he's been excited here. He's I said, don't get out the macho man. He's got the whole outfit and he pulls on the glasses. And I said, just keep it calm for the show. Pete, appreciate you joining as always, brother. Thanks. Well, um, as, as Dan is going to constantly make fun of um, uh, my lack of knowledge of wrestling, because generally it's Dan's lack of knowledge of rugby that we make fun of. So sure. we're now, we're now, we're now in, in a sport where he knows something about that he can talk. That's why he's so excited. <laughs> I, have, I, got, I This is not a lie. I've been whistling your entrance theme, the last one, the JBL theme, all morning, John. I've been so excited to get you on the show. So let's start with the wrestling career because you started in football, right? You're a Texas boy, born and raised, played at uh, Albaline Christian, played on the offensive line, right? Offensive line, that's right. I played right and left tackle. Yeah, and then uh, had a little run at the NFL with the Raiders. Were they LA or Oakland then? L.A. at the time. They were in El Segundo, uh, right? <laughs> One of the worst cities to live in in L.A., at least at the time. But they were in L.A. at the time. So how was that experience, getting to camp with the Raiders? It, it was fantastic. I, I probably chose the wrong team to go to. They had three all-pros that year. They had some incredible linemen. Nosebar, Wisniewski, Montoya were all pros that year. In fact, Max Montoya just signed one of the first big offensive lineman contracts for like eight or $900,000 a year, which at the time was absolutely unheard of. But I got to watch Bo Jackson, uh, Marcus Allen, uh, some incredible uh, guys of sport, some of the best athletes of all time. It, it was a wonderful experience. I'm trying to get the timeline. Who was the quarterback then? That was before Marinovic, right? He wasn't there? Yep, Jay Schrader. Uh, they made Schrader. it to – Made to the AFC finals, and if Bo Jackson had got hurt, probably would have made it to the Super Bowl. Don't think they would have beat the 49ers in the Super Bowl, but they certainly would have made it and, and been there. Jay Schrader could throw a ball through a wall. He had a, a, had a cannon for an arm. So from there – sorry, Pete, I'm just going to do the whole thing. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm along for the ride until we get to the rugby jump, stuff. This is good. Jump into the rugby stuff. From that, was, was wrestling a part of your life during this period or was just something like after football kind of ran its course that you fell into? 
wrestling was a part of my life early in my life. My first, my, one of my youngest memories was watching wrestling uh, with my grandfather when I was a kid in Sweetwater, Texas. We used to watch the Von Erichs out of uh, Dallas, Fort Worth. I later got to wrestle against Kerry and Kevin and got to watch the Funks out of Amarillo. I later got the tag team with Terry Funk, which was, a, the, all that was just a, a thrill for me. I wanted to be a wrestler and a pro football player. I played a little pro football, which, you know, I was hoping to play for eight or nine years, but either injuries or lack of ability <laughs> shortcutted my career. And so I thought, you know, I, this is something I want to do now. I'd been a coach in between World League seasons. After the Raiders, I played in the World League, and I coached at a college down in Athens, Texas, Trinity Valley Community College. I'd wanted to be a coach, but I thought, you know what, I can always be a coach. I got one chance here while I'm still young to be a wrestler, and I really wanted to give it a shot and hopefully make some money at it. So that was the mindset of when I got done with professional football and injuries, I couldn't go – nobody wanted me after three years of playing. I wanted to get into wrestling while I was still young enough to do something. Yeah, and you, uh, you did that pretty much straight out. Before you got into uh, professional wrestling, you wrestled a bear. Tell me <laughs> about that experience. I didn't do very well. Thank God it wasn't brown bear mating season. I'm not sure what would have happened. It was it was an absolute disaster. I was an All-American at Abilene Christian, and we used to start with a what they call bull in the ring. It was an old just tough guy drill. You know, you get one guy in the ring, and somebody would get in, and you try to physically throw him out. You could punch him, kick him. It was a stupid drill. Our coach had the mindset of we're going to make our players tough. Well, if they're not tough when they're pups, they're not going to be tough when they're old dogs either you know so my idea was recruit tough people don't try to make them tough after we get them it was a stupid drill I thought but I was out there every day playing bull in the ring and some of the freshmen asked me said how do you think you'd do against a bear Paul Bear Bryant got his name wrestling a bear I said I'd kill a bear you know typical hubris of a 21 year old that thinks he whooped the world they signed me up to wrestle a bear and at a bar in, in Abilene, Texas. They tell me, they said, hey, we signed you up to wrestle a bear. I said, what are you talking about? They said, well, you said you can beat a bear. So I go to the bar, the place is packed. Everybody around me is drunk. My college roommates are all around me. They've been drinking. I'm the only one sober, me and the bear. And I think it's probably a 300 pound bear. It was seven feet tall. It was like an 800 pound bear. I mean, it, it almost killed me. It went absolutely berserk at one point. I had my college roommates trying to drag me out from under the bear. The bear was sitting on top of me, swatting me in the head. It blacked my whole face, my eye, everything. It, just, it was an absolute disaster. And the owner of the bar thought it was the greatest thing he had ever seen. He said, would you come back? I said, hell no, I ain't coming back. I've never wrestled a bear again. There was a young Leonardo DiCaprio in the crowd that night, and he's like, I'm going to do that in a movie one day. And then the <laughs> revenue came around. That, you were his inspiration. But that's awesome, man. I can, I can tell you uh, no one else on this podcast has ever wrestled a bear. So I ran with the bulls too, so I haven't done very good against animals. They, uh, they pretty much – actually, I didn't, get, I didn't get hit in the bulls. The guy beside me did. He got gored pretty bad. But I, I'm giving up on animals now that I'm older, and I can't outrun them. I can't outfight them. I'm just going to watch them on National Geographic. I've, I've been to that as well and didn't get as close as you, but seeing someone else was the quickest way to get me off that street. I was like uh, 24 at the time. And I'm like, you know what? This is definitely not my cup of tea. These bulls, they're massive and they're fast and agile. Oh. 
And those it's streets are narrow. I would reckon, I don't like bullfighting. I think it's barbaric. I think it should be banned. But the running of the bulls, the bulls are fine. The people are the ones that get hurt. I, I thought it was one of the most awesome events I've ever seen. I, I don't recommend participating like I did, but I would recommend mm -hmm. anybody go to Pamplona and watch the, at least the running of the bulls. That's a massive so, thing. So, John, at, at what point did, did you begin to feel like you were too old to do that sort of stuff? Like, like, uh, like and, and, and how did that how did that affect your wrestling like like how did that link with your wrestling career that you were like oh like at what point were you like uh my body can't do some of this stuff <laughs> well i ran with the bulls after i retired because that was kind of a childhood dream of mine because i'd read about merle uh, hemingway running with yep. the bulls he didn't yep. run he just watched it i didn't know that until i got there <laughs> uh, so that was <laughs> that was he's smart that was kind of a dream so you know, I've tried to climb a couple mountains. I've climbed a couple, uh, but the, the body's just kind of given out of me. The, what caused me to retire from wrestling was injuries. And so when I got done, I'm just now hoping to be able to play golf. And I'll look forward to climbing some smaller mountains uh, coming up, maybe hopefully next couple of years. Let's go fast forward into the career. 1996, Justin Hawk Bradshaw makes his debut against Bob Holly, then known as Spark Plug before he became hardcore. Uh, how is that experience? How would you compare the nerves of that to a, to a football game? That wasn't that bad. I know, Bob Holly was a terrific uh, veteran. He was a good friend of mine. He actually became a later a good friend of mine, but he was a very amenable guy. Uh, and so when I met him, I wasn't that nervous against Bob, uh, mainly because of the position we were in. We were in a, one of the matches that really didn't matter. I'd wrestled Ke Kevin Von Erich earlier in the big first big match of my career for the uh, NWA North American Championship, which I won that night. And it was a terrible match because I looked across the ring and I see a guy I grew up idolizing. And it was, I was so overwhelmed by the moment that it was, I didn't do my part. I thought it was a terrible match. And I felt terrible about it for Kevin because I, I admired and respected him, still do so much. Later, I wrestled Kevin and I fought some decent matches. But when I first got to WWE, I was okay in the spots I was in until say WrestleMania, I think it was 12. And I'd wrestled in Europe, I'd wrestled in Japan, I'd been over there, good grief, 30, 40 times. I wrestled Puerto Rico, Mexico, I wrestled all over the world. I'd lived in Europe for two years wrestling all over. I wasn't that overwhelmed by matches, but I was overwhelmed by spectacles. And when I saw Shawn Michaels repel from the ceiling at the Anaheim Pond, when he was gonna face uh, Bret Hart in a 60 man Ironman match, I just remember thinking, I'm not in the right place. I don't belong here, and I probably should just go back to Japan. <laughs> the next One of the next nights, I wrestled Undertaker uh, live on Monday Night Raw, and I just remember all that was kind of in my head, thinking, I'm not sure I belong here. This, <laughs> this may be one and done. Yeah, I think everyone goes through those stories. It, it's actually refreshing, and uh, I had these conversations after I was retired, but to hear that from guys like yourself who, who reached the absolute pinnacle of your sport – but those doubts exist and it's good for rugby players as well. Young kids who are playing rugby because they go through the same process, right? They get on the field, sometimes across some people they grew up idolizing and you almost become too analytical. You, you study that person, you put them on a pedestal and kind of forget that, Hey, I'm here because I'm just as good or, you know, I have the same abilities as them, but. Yeah, which I think cool kind of helps some of these young guys right now in the sports world, at least we're in, in the United States and probably also in, in the UK, England and, and Europe. A lot of these young guys are getting out there for the first time and they don't have that crowd around them 
And so you're seeing like totals in NBA games greatly go over what they normally historically would. You're seeing totals go over in the NFL games over historically what they would. And I think it's because a lot of these young guys are just not overwhelmed. You don't have the home crowd visiting us another when you're visiting the, your opposing team. And I think that makes a difference because it doesn't add to the factor of some of these young guys having a pressure moment. Yeah, you mentioned that WrestleMania, Shawn Michaels. He becomes the first Grand Slam champion. You tick that box later in your career, though. And now, I don't know if this would be the pinnacle, but you're going into the Hall of Fame next year as well, 2020 inductee. Tell me about that phone call. Does uh, Vince give you a call and let you know? Or how does that go? Is it a letter? You know, the NFL have done a few, like Joe Buck. They did live on television. Like, how is your Hall of Fame induction done by the WWE? Well, I, I, get, I get inducted in the Hall of Fame. I actually haven't been inducted yet. But the, as soon as I get announced that the, I'm going in the Hall of Fame, the world ends. So I'm not sure that's a, that's a coincidence or not. But I get a call from Vince McMahon, and I, I get a call every once in a while. We're not, you know, close friends. You know, he's busy. Uh, so I get a call from Vince, and I see that number, and I answer. It's that baritone voice, you know, that's so recognizable. And he said, I want you to come to the Hall of Fame. And I said, yeah, boss, whatever you want. Be happy to do whatever you need. And he goes, no, you're going in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> I said, oh, he didn't say something. <laughs> I'd, be I'd be happy to be there. I thought he wanted me to do commentary or something. Who's putting so you in? Is... Vince, called, Vince called me personally, which was incredibly nice. I, I think the world of Vince McMahon, we've always had a terrific relationship, and I was very excited that Vince called me personally. Yeah, who's putting you in, mate? Is Ron Simmons going to put you in? Or you don't know Ron yet? Simmons, nobody else. One of the best else. Well, players of all time, the first black heavyweight champion, my best friend, he's put me in the Hall of Fame. What a legend. And now, when you get there, you got to talk to Vince. Say, Vince, stop dumping money into the XFL, buy an MLR franchise, put it right in Stanford, Connecticut, and stop playing around. What do you reckon? I think he's very, I think he would be interested in the MLR. I, you know, he's got Alpha Entertainment, which I think he put $100 million of his own dollars into, which is a sports entertainment based, uh, which I'm not sure where, what they're going to do with it. You know, I know that they have an interest in DraftKings and they obviously had an interest in the XFL, which, you know, because of COVID, it uh, got canceled. It was doing really well. So mm -hmm. I'm not sure what he's going to do with that Alpha Entertainment, which is all based upon sports. Vince loves sports, and he loves live sports. I think the MLR would be great for Vince. I'd love to have Vince involved. Oh, yeah, he'd be great. Whether – you know, I'm trying to think. You need a team in Florida, and I know they have the uh, NXT set up down there in Florida. So plenty of land and plenty of interest there. Obviously, Connecticut would be tough. Land is pretty expensive throughout the area, but uh, I digress. Let's talk some rugby. Because Pete's just chomping at the bit here. Oh, well, well, some wrestling back into it. Let's get the transition to, to, to rugby. Because I think one of the interesting things about the history of wrestling is that there's been a lot of different, like what, what you would call, and maybe, you know, in, as, as a businessman, John, you know, there's been a lot of startups in wrestling, right? And there have been some that have been successful and some that haven't been successful. It'll be interesting to get your insight into what you think has made, um, you know, uh, WWE successful and the dominant wrestling franchise or the, um, the dominant wrestling organization, because we're now in our second era of professional rugby. What does the MLR need to do and what can we learn from wrestling? Because we're all in the entertainment business that might help the MLR succeed. 
To me, it's all about bells and whistles. You know, people talk about the purity and the sanctity of the sport, and I don't think that's taken away by bells and whistles. You know, Michael Jordan's team in the 1990s when they had two three-peats was probably the best basketball team to ever play the game. Michael Jordan, arguably the greatest player to ever play the game. But yet when he came out, he had laser lights, he had rock music, he had smoke machines, he had all kinds of things around it. You know, if you're a purist for basketball, just put Michael Jordan in a gym and, and watch him with no sound. You know, but that's not what people, you know, love these days. They love the entertainment value. I've been to a couple of Old Glory games here in, uh, in D.C. I think they do a good job. But I think, to me, you got to get out of the mindset that this is just a, a pure sport. It's got to be entertainment. People are busy. And people want to see stuff that's new. But when they go, they want to be entertained. When you go to a WWE wrestling event, from the moment you get there until the moment you end, it's entertainment. Now, some people will think it's great entertainment. Some people don't, but the people that don't, don't come anyway. But they're entertained from the time they get there to the time they start. And I think that's the thing that can make MLR different. The good thing about MLR is there's no helmets. You know, you got a chance to actually get learn these people firsthand. My wife met a professional football player. She, from then on, would say, hey, wait, let's watch the game. I said, why are you watching football? She goes, because that's where so-and-so plays. You know, if you get to know these people, and these rugby players are incredible characters. They're all very tough people. You know, most of these big, square-jawed, good-looking guys, they're made for television. And I think that's what needs to get out for the MLR. And you, I think that's very possible to do that. That's why I'm very bullish on the success of rugby in the United States. Yeah, I agree. And you come from an industry that builds stars better than anyone. You know, you look at, like, Dwayne Johnson, where he started to where he is now, all that – is on the WWE, WWF, uh, John Cena is the same. You know, all these guys who have transitioned from that world into Hollywood, it's all because their brand was built by that juggernaut and wrestling. I think rugby's got to follow the same route and focus more on building the brand of some of the stars because it's what works in this landscape, right? And like you said, some of the purists may not agree with it. Uh, the team game, the ethos, that can all still exist within that world, but you need the stars and you need the brands. Yeah, and you know what? The heck with the purists. They're going to be there anyway. You know, they're the guys who sit around and gripe about everything. They gripe about rule changes. They gripe about TV production. They gripe about games. They gripe about teams. You know what? They're going to be there anyway. They're your hardcore fans. And I'm not trying to just dismiss those guys, but they're going to be your guys who are going to raise the most objections anyway. You want the casual fan. You want the fan that looks on a viral video of Owen Farrell standing back at a V going against that incredible Haka, with that smirk on his face like a sniper killer. You know, that to me, and all of a sudden now, people that have never known anything about rugby want to watch Owen Farrell you know it's just interesting and that's to me how you build characters characters and you can do that because these rugby guys fit all the mold they're they're tough guys they're guys and you don't have helmets that are hiding their face like you do in football I was just wondering if you've been doing some defensive work with Owen Farrell some of those shots looking a little reminiscent <laughs> of your uh, your old clothesline from hell days yeah that uh, clothesline of his was uh, actually pretty good I actually yeah. defended him on social media, and I got attacked by a lot of people. You know what? Come on. He came to Bermuda. He worked with our kids. He did a lot of good stuff for us, and I think that he made an aggressive tackle, and he got punished for it. That's what punishment's for, and I think people are overthinking this with Owen Farrell. Yeah. And did your rugby journey start in Bermuda, mate? Like, I know you spent a lot of time in Bermuda, and you've done work there. My first contact with you was through the Bermuda national team they were playing, and we kind of started chatting back and forth about the work you were doing there, which was like – 
it was eye-opening for me to say, well, this guy's like obviously a legend in his sport and like what brought him to rugby? So can you give everyone else like a, a quick speed up to date on how you got involved with rugby? You work in Bermuda and I see you wearing Shane Young's shirt there, the Memphis in the city rugby as well. So give us a little rundown on yep. how you're involved very, that. very proud of Shane Young. I think he's the, probably runs the best charity in the world, in my opinion. I'm, I'm proud to be on the board with Shane and help him out any way I can. I'm just proud to be associated with Memphis Inner City Rugby. They do incredible work. To give you a little stat here, and I'll, I'll go into what happened in Bermuda. The, the, in Memphis Inner City, it's the worst child poverty in the USA, from what I've been told. And you have a 60% dropout rate. Shane's group not only has 100% graduation rate in high school, but 100% of those kids are going somewhere afterwards. They're going to military, trade school, or, or college. And he's given out over a million dollars in scholarships that he's helped these kids get. I mean, he's really transformed inner city Memphis and he's built a wonderful program with several state championships. I think the world of, of Shane. And when I was in Bermuda, I just started living there and I was there for a summer because I was hurt in WWE, didn't have anywhere to go. I thought I'd go, go over to Bermuda, play a little golf. I saw the problems they were having with gangs and with, with violence and with murders and a, a high murder rate you know it's a, it's it's kind of skewed because it's such a small population so just a few murders will put you in the higher echelon of murder rates in the world which is kind of unfair to bermuda and i'd been down to cape town for the 2010 soccer football world cup mm -hmm. and i'd run into a nick keller who started beyond sport and he asked me, invited me to go visit a program, that big shanty town outside of Cape Town, and see this program, Mighty Milers, that used running to help kids get educated, get out of the shanty town, give them options in life. And I wanted to do something in Bermuda uh, with the kids there. And I called Nick, and I said, what should I do? And he said, rugby is the perfect sport. It's like soccer. You just need a ball. But it's also physical. So these big, tough kids have a chance to run into each other and get some aggression out. It's a perfect sport. And it turned out being the perfect sport. I introduced rugby to the public schools in Bermuda, which had only been a predominantly a white expat sport before. It's now in all the curriculums in Bermuda. And we had a 100% graduation rate as well for kids in our programs. Pete? Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think the um, sport, you know, we, we often get caught up in elite sport and professional sport, which is sort of like the tip of the spear. It's like, the 0.1% or 0.01% of people that get there. But sport, and obviously, I believe rugby in particular, has an ability to transform lives. It creates that discipline. It gets people to be physical but not violent, which I think is, for, for many kids in the uh, um, inner cities, is a challenge. And I think Memphis do a great job, and I think it's great to hear the story of you becoming a rugby fan by helping uh, others and opening up that um, the opportunity for kids. I think... The Caribbean itself for rugby is really interesting. I've done some work down there. You know, you're right. It's generally rugby is generally an expat sport, right? So it's a white sport. The only, I think the only island that isn't like that is Jamaica, where Jamaica is actually, um, you know, more of a, a, a black sport. But I think that um, there's definitely some opportunities. And Bermuda has a strong rugby tradition, right? There's a, there's a lot of rugby on the island, but just wasn't in all areas of the island. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't in any, in any of the public schools. We're now in the curriculum and all the public schools there. We started up the program and uh, Patrick Callow, Patty Callow was the youth development officer that we hired initially, just best hire we ever had. And we, we went into schools and recruited. We were told about gang leaders to stay away from. We actually went and recruited those <laughs> gang leaders. And we told them, said, look, this is a big, tough sport. If you want to 
be big and tough, come play rugby. Well, when they came, everybody came with them because they were leaders. There was a time that you had the, the two schools, Berkeley and Cedar Bridge. They let the schools out because there's supposed to be this huge gang fight between the two schools. So I called a lot of local politicians and the police officers, and I said, you got to come down to the police field where we were playing rugby. And I said, you're going to find the, some of the biggest, toughest kids from Cedar Bridge and Berkeley. We're playing rugby today. They let out the two schools because they were scared there was going to be a big, massive gang fight. We actually had the two schools playing each other that day. And they asked me, they said, you've got these kids out there playing rugby, tackling each other? I said, yeah. I said, we've never had a fight. It tells you some of the ethos of rugby and what rugby can do to change communities. Yeah, and it's a great vehicle, isn't it? Because it is that culture. And I think what you've done there with getting the leaders in the community and it doesn't matter in what way they are leaders. Leaders are leaders, and you get them in, and they lead the way for everyone else. And then once you get into that team culture, the ability to then look across the locker room and say, oh, I don't want to let that guy down. I don't want to let that girl down. You know, It's almost infectious. And then the game itself almost breeds the character that you're looking for in those communities. So it is great work, man. I'm going to have to get down to Memphis. I, I spent some time with Shane down in Florida. His family's from down there. So great dude. Great to see you helping down there as well, mate, because that's a, a brilliant thing. And, and it's great to see rugby starting to find its way into those areas because that's going to be the, the driving force of the future of the game with the kids. And there's so much talent in America that gets wasted in all sports. So if we can grab some of it and then help them along the way as well, it's a win-win. Yeah, I completely agree. Mark Griffith uh, helped me a lot to play Rugby USA founder. Will Snape Rogers has been a, a great uh, asset uh, for me and a friend for me. Hoping to do something here in D.C. with Old Glory and the inner cities. Uh, we've talked a lot about it. Hopefully something will get done. I've also done a lot of work down in Malawi and the East Africa region, you know, with uh, Bubasi Pride. Gareth Noakes, who helped so much and ran the uh, Bermuda Rugby Program for so long, a wonderful human being, an incredibly competent person, is uh, going to be back down there once COVID lets him. They're building a sports and education facility, but it's based around rugby. You know, these kids love rugby. You know, kid, kids that, that grow up, they don't really have soccer or uh, basketball maybe to play. Rugby has, especially 15s, any kid who wants to play can play. And you learn so much about it, and especially in areas that you have violence. I always thought if kids are playing rugby against other kids and they're sitting down afterwards having a Coke and a pizza, they're not as likely to shoot each other three years later. Yep. I know yeah, that yeah. simplifies it, but that's the truth. Well, I think, I think there's, there's the, you know, and that's always been something that's been, I think, that is, is critical around the culture that's around the game. You know, it's, I, I remember reading once, and I think it came from the South Africa Coach Development Manual. It was, some, it was something like, um, because of the physical nature of the game, rugby builds bonds, right? So in other words, if I, because I'm hitting you in the game, right? And, and I'm being physical with my teammates, we build bonds. And I think that post-match ability to kind of let it all go to leave it on the field. I think that's a really important lesson. I think that's one of the special things that rugby can bring, particularly to America, that doesn't have that sort of respect for the opponent that you would sometimes like. 
Yeah, I agree. We had a kid one time when we first started, and we had different gangs that were in our program, and they wouldn't even be on the same practice team as other kids uh, on the rugby field. I didn't really know what to do. I thought, I've got to get these kids to know each other some, so I would stop a real fun activity, ask kids, okay, who is his brothers and sisters? What does he want to do after high school? Trying to get them to learn each other about each other and break down those barriers. We had a kid, and Patrick Callow told me one day, he said, grab him, and I grabbed him. And I knew something was wrong. And I said, what's the problem? And he said, well, I've got to go to this fight. And right outside of our pitch, there was a gang there waiting on him. And he was putting down his knapsack, which had a uh, backpack, which had books and all the school supplies, because he knew he was going to get beat up. And he didn't want to get all this stuff stolen also. I mean, a pretty tough kid. That's pretty gutsy to be what he's about to do. So I went over and talked to the gang. I ran them off. And I asked one of the young kids that was there, I said, I want to thank you because you alerted the coach but you are in this other gang. Now, I don't want to talk about your gang membership because one thing I was a rule was you couldn't be actively involved in a gang and be in our program. And I said, I don't want to talk about the gang membership, but I want to ask you, why did you do this? I said, because you really helped our kid, but you're going to have problems now with that gang. That is your gang. And he looked at me like I was crazy. He said, we're all on the same team, coach. We're on a rugby team together. And I knew at that point we had broke down the barriers and the sport had broke down all these barriers between these kids. Our team was undefeated that year. In fact, we were so good. I wanted to see how they would react when they got beat. So I put all the other teams on the island together in an all-star team and told the referee to ref against us just so I could <laughs> what happened. And they won that game too. <laughs> they were an incredible group of young kids. I see those kids now when I go back to Bermuda. You know, they all have families. They're, none of them are incarcerated. All of them graduated school. It's really cool. And all that came about because of the sport of rugby. Yeah, it is. It's a great journey. And your journey's kind of continued too now because not only the youth game, you're involved with Old Glory as well. So MLR, wouldn't it be cool someday to see some of these kids from Memphis and Bermuda kind of trickle up into Major League Rugby? But tell us a little bit about your involvement with Old Glory. Yeah, I don't have any official involvement. I met with Tim Brown a lot. who's kind of the operations manager. John Manson, uh, who I knew from the Glasgow uh, Warriors, I believe Glasgow Warriors, um, Wonderful person. Uh, Paul Sheehy, one of the half owners with Chris Dunleavy. I know Paul well. He's a neighbor here in D.C. And, uh, of course, Coach Andrew uh, I met with and had uh, dinner with a couple uh, – once, once, one time. I've only met him a couple times, but I had dinner with him once. So I don't have an official involvement with OGDC. Uh, we're talking about doing something as far as they're wanting to build an entire process, pipeline process of players to come into their academies – but to do that, you need a real grassroots movement. And I'm more interested in the grassroots movement about what it can do to change kids' lives in the inner city. So we're talking about working together. There's nothing official yet. I'm really impressed by the professionalism of Old Glory. I, these guys have absolutely blown me away as far as what their plans are. I think they're going to be very successful. Yeah, and they were looking good on the field too. I know you said you got out to a couple of games. I did the last game there against Atlanta and – Man, they were starting to click, especially that back line. They were. Yeah, they beat Seattle uh, in one of their first uh, first yeah. games, uh, the defending uh, two-time champion. So I was really excited about the Old Glory season, and then COVID ruined uh, ruined everything. I think Old, Old, Old Glory are doing everything right. I mean, I think that they're one of um, they're already generating significant revenues, right? I think people forget. I mean, DC is sort of my old playing ground. But there's a huge um, rugby population there. Lots of very successful business people, and they all stepped up to support Old Glory. I think it's going to be 
um, an exciting franchise. I think the foundations are there to do lots of good stuff. And I think that you're right. Lots of really good, competent people working there. A lot of very passionate people. And I think that, and, 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 and they, they are just like you said, John, they're not just, you know, they're already thinking about what are we going to do to get into the inner cities? What are we going to do to be able to leverage rugby and the old glory um, brand to give more opportunities to kids? And I think that's uh, part of what they're doing that's really great. Yeah, and I think after this uh, presidential election is over, it's so contentious right now. There's so much uh, partisan angst right now. I think once it's over, no matter who wins, I think America will start trying to get back to, okay, let's heal the inequities in the system. Let's figure out what's wrong and let's start making uh, inroads to, to healing the wounds that have been created by uh, so much of this partisan divide. And I think you're already seeing that with, you know, groups that are giving, Michael Jordan gave $100 million to inner city, Apple, Amazon, right. all are giving money toward inner cities and I think now is the time to put together something like this with Old Glory to see if you can't build something in inner cities based around the sport of rugby where you help kids get jobs where you help kids graduate so now I think is a wonderful time to be able to make a difference in the inner city and I think Old Glory their management as you say I'm just blown away by these guys I think they're the right guys to do it all right yeah I love your stuff mate obviously doing great things but actually the rundown says Fantasy football fumbles here, but uh, I'm 3-0, so Aaron, you can go suck it. Uh, no fumbles on my part this year. <laughs> I am uh, what, I am on the road to 3-1, and one, so, uh, you know. Wait, I'm the maybe. whipping boy of this group, John, just so you know. Just, like the, uh, the hierarchy. You know, we're, doing, we're doing okay over, over here right now in, in fantasy, uh, but Dan and I basically have the same team, John. So it's, Different it's, leagues. Same teams. Very, very similar players. <laughs> you do a bit of a bit of the sports gambling stuff too, don't you? I love, I, I love it, man. I love odds. I love looking at odds. And I love sports gambling. To me, it's a lot of fun to me. I have a, a podcast, Follow the Action. We do a lot of stuff with giving out picks and inside information, which is not illegal in sports gambling. You know, as far as where money is going, as far as sharp money, where trends are moving as far as lines because of that money movement. So as a sports fan, I'm, I'm a little bit in disarray because I'm a Cowboy fan and we're one in three and probably Sorry. should be four right now if Atlanta doesn't <laughs> biggest dumbest plays in the history of football and give Dallas a game it's sad to see that uh, the Philadelphia Eagles are one two and one in the historic powerhouse division NFC East and they are in first place right now I know <laughs> all, my teams, all my teams are terrible right now. I, know. I know it's uh, it's it's weird the sports betting world I, I remember going in Australia where you know sports betting is legal you can pretty much put a bet on at any pub in the country. We went to the headquarters of the TAB, which is like runs the betting in Australia. And we went back and there's like 12, you know, rugby guys. And I'm expecting to see like these journalists, you know, these rugby nuts. And it was all mathematicians. Like they didn't know at the time the number one player. So like, you know, the, the Patrick Mahomes of rugby at the time walks in and the guy goes, oh, hey, I'm, I'm David. How are you going? And I'm like, you don't know who this guy is. This guy is like the best in the business. They're all mathematicians. They just right. follow numbers. And that's yeah, it. I work with I work with some incredible sports better. Some of the best in the world. The Philly Godfather, Steve Maltepis, and his whole crew, and they're all on our podcast, Follow the Action. We put out tons of videos and this stuff, you know. But when you look at these guys, they're not the old guys with the stogies that are drinking bourbon in the back rooms. They're 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 analytics. They work 12, 14 hours a day. They don't drink. All they do is break down games. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely amazing how analytical they look at the game. I, I love American football. But to talk to them about how they look at a game, to me, a person who grew up in the, in the game, 
it's a complete different way that they look at it because it's 100% analytical. Yeah, no and that's coming in rugby, right? Like that's yes. rugby's so early, but you can already see that, you know, more and more stats are coming out and, and you know, the ability to break down. I think it's still really, really early. I, there's no way that, you know, um, professional coaching in rugby is so young relative, relative to professional coaching in football. Um, I think you're going to see more specialization of coaches, right? You know, um, everyone right now is kind of like, a, you know, an attack coach, a, a defense coach, and a set-piece coach kind of thing. And I think that, you, you know, there's going to be more and more specialization. And, and, and that's going to happen because there'll be more an analytics that will allow you to understand more about what goes on. And so, I, you know, I can see Major League Rugby being on the cutting edge of that because we should have access to the people that think that way. And we should have um, players that will respond to that. So I think it'll be interesting to see where Major League Rugby is going to be 10 years from now. But, you know, hopefully we'll be on the edge of the, you know, of the analytics in the world. Yeah, and I agree with that. I think that uh, Major League Rugby needs to get some type of sports betting relationship, whether that's with MGM, whether that's with Fox Bets, whether that's with DraftKings, FanDuel or something. But that's helped so many leagues that are trying to form. Yep get started because once you have you know once you have a game that you don't really know a lot of people in but if you have a little money on it you watch the whole game yeah. you learn about the people i think it would really help them and i'm sure major league rugby's already thought about that and has it in the pipeline or at least i hope they do yeah i, I agree fantasy sports and then sports betting it's 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 such a massive part of the sports landscape moving forward i think it'd be uh it'd be silly not to be involved in, in if not one both of those things all right, let's go through some quick news. Utah Warriors in the news. They have announced plans to build their own stadium. John, obviously, uh, that's a big part of the sports landscape. We were talking a little bit before we went live about how these professional franchises make money and stadium ownership is a big part. So the Warriors jumping in here. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one? Uh, the Warriors looking at building their own uh, facility here out in Utah. I think it's brilliant, and I think it's exactly what has to happen. You know, before we went on air, Pete was talking about the fact that you need to have your own stadium to be able to make money, and I completely agree. you got to have the entire package. Otherwise, relying just on TV rights. You own a stadium, especially in the Northeast, if you have it covered, you, those things print money. They're ATMs. You know, you can rent that thing out so many different ways. Cowboys Stadium in down in uh, Arlington, Texas, where the Dallas Cowboys play. Jerry Jones built this multi-billion dollar, at the time, the most expensive stadium ever built. It's rented out 200 nights a year. I mean, you know, it's so much more than just the sport that's played in it. And all these major league rugby franchises need to find a way to be able to have a stadium that they can call their own and also draw revenue from. Yeah, I worked out. I had a workout at Cowboys Stadium for the Cowboys, and we got uh, we got told we had to get out of there because Tim McGraw was playing that night, <laughs> and they had to quickly break everything down and build the, the everything for Tim. Maybe it was the next night, but we got uh, the special teamers. We got kicked out pretty quickly. We, we held the record there. The WWE does one hundred three thousand people. It's still the indoor attendance record. So we, what, we got what, what was the event? WrestleMania. WrestleMania, that's right. The Rock made a special appearance with the John Cena, the whole crew, and had 103,000 people there. Man, that's the way to do it. And then uh, Free Jacks, uh, they announced their academies now certified. It says Free Jacks and New England, so I'm thinking it's San Diego and New England. That's uh, Aaron there going doubling down on the Free Jacks. He's got the Free Jacks on the mind there. They have been announced as academies certified by uh, USA Rugby. 
Atlanta, they played that exhibition match yesterday. So we saw some rugby. It was an inter-squad scrimmage, so pretty safe stuff. I'm not sure if you got to see that. Pete, did you uh, get a chance to log on? I, I have not had a chance to see that. Right right here, I have my daughter, Penelope, who's up, um, homesick. So hey, we've been mainly doing that. Just just a couple of things on the um, what I loved about the Free Jacks on their announcement of their academy is the, the, how, the, how they have different regions. So they've got different different academies throughout New England which I think is a really smart idea. So all of the players that join can have an identity beyond just being on the Free Jacks. And looks like a lot of really interesting work going on up there in, uh, in New England. It is. Aaron? It seemed that I, I did watch a little bit of the, uh, of the game um, that was on Saturday, which was on Facebook. Uh, if you look at the rosters, it seems sort of you had like the probables on the silver and the possibles on the black team for silver and black. I don't know why they went with that. Maybe they're the, they want to be the Raiders, even though they call themselves the Rattlers now. But um, like it, it was it, the first 20 minutes were pretty dominant. Like Kirk Coleman with his boot, like what he can do uh, is pretty, pretty intense uh, as we saw a little, bit in the the canceled season that we had but uh you know uh, it was nice to to get some rugby and some of those guys that are in pathway 404 apparently um have already been signed by other teams and it's to be announced so okay that's kind of cool yeah getting a bit of rugby i like it speaking of rugby uh we welcome the rugby shop as a new e-commerce partner for major league rugby so make sure you get to shopmlr.com powered by the rugby shop and also They'll be joining the show as sponsors. So good work, Pete, and locking that down. Businessman Steinberg strikes again. That Penn State education. <laughs> I, I don't think I don't think that was me, but 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 I think I think it is important. Penelope, can I? Okay, Penelope is. So do all the fans. They would rather talk to mummy as well, but we have Pete no, and Daddy's with us, so that's what we're doing. So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go and get Penelope. I'll be right back. I'm gonna go and get right. Penelope set up in her room, and I'll be right back. I'll I'll leave you. I'll leave John to be the professor in just for the next couple of minutes. All right. Let's talk about uh, some big signings, John. Uh, Ma Nonu, probably one of the biggest names in the league that we've had in the first three years. He goes back to Toulon in France. A uh, big payday there, but. As we saw from his brief stint in San Diego, still a very high-quality player and playing at a high level. So, big loss for San Diego, but uh, good to see Ma still playing at a high level. Did, I'm trying to think, Old Glory, they didn't play San Diego, so he wouldn't have been out there. No, Old Glory has, you know, the beast uh, from South Africa, uh, Tindau, you know, a terrific human being, uh, besides being one of the best props of all time. Uh, so, I think it helps with, with these big names. I don't think that's the be-all, end-all. I think you want to create the names yourself. And mm-hmm. to take nothing away from these incredible international athletes. The Beast, when he came here, was fantastic. I mean, he went to inner cities. He worked. People love the guy. You know, so it's a huge boost to have these guys. I think it really helps the game. But like uh, Pele playing uh, in the United States, uh, you know, late in his career, you know, you got to be able to – it helps the, the league significantly. But at some point, you've got to build your own stars. And hopefully, you see that migration. Uh, I think you're starting to see it now. Yeah. No, I, I agree 100%. I think Pete does as well. Um, it's all about that brand, right? Like, and similar to what you said with your wife. Like, she met that player. And now she supports that player and a byproduct, that team. You know? So it's going to be similar. You're going to be more drawn towards someone that you can relate to. It's like, oh... I'm from Sweetwater, Texas. John, John Layfield's from there. He plays for Old Glory. 
I'm an old glory fan now because I have that connection to you. So yeah, and I think a lot of that's going to come about with personality profiles. It's what I've talked to Glory about. You know, when you have somebody on your team, don't just play the game. You know, don't just put the game on television. Build your personality profiles. These are really entertaining, tough young guys that people want to meet. And I think that gets you interested in the team itself. You know, there's a couple of logistics I would change on on filming also. I never film from, you know, put, put the hard cam opposite the people. It's, you know, there's, a, there's a few things I would change that, that, that uh, drives me nuts. But I think MLR is getting there. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, again, it's a big part of what made your industry in wrestling successful. Like, you know, you have your consistencies and what works and just kind of go with that product. And one of them is showing, I mean, I remember, and I'll, I'll go back. I'll, I'm actually the fanboy, not Pete. But I remember early in his career when Kane came in, he, did, he couldn't find the camera and he's running around with, I think it was The Undertaker and he's got him and he's trying to remember where the, where his camera, what would you call camera two is and he keeps spinning around the ring and he finds it and, and drops it and you can just imagine in the backstage there, you know, people losing their mind, like what's he doing? But uh, it's going to be such a huge part of the success is going to be the television. If the product's not good, if yep. we're not showing it, how the game deserves to be shown, then... Yeah, yeah I agree. part of it is, you know, I know, understand it's a matter of finances as well, but part of it is, you know, you look at some of these games that are, they're shown on MLR and they shoot them from where the fans are to where the fans aren't. And so it looks like no fans are there. And sometimes there's several thousand fans there. It's just a matter of putting the hard camera on the other side and shooting back toward the fans. You know, there's yeah. certain, just a few things that really significantly help the product. Because last thing you want to see is something that you think nobody is watching. And I've seen some games, you know, where you, the, I know the stands are full because they show them, but they show it from where the stands are because it's easier to put the cameras there to the other side. And on the other side, there's no fans. So it says it's just perception sometimes. It's bells and whistles. Yep. Yep. Like Seattle do a great job. It's tough for, for Pete and I to the game, but they do the opposite side, even though we sit on the same side as the fans. So we have to remember what we see is left to right with our eyes is flipped on the screen. So it's just... But I would rather make that adjustment, which is a small adjustment for us, than, and show a product, like you're saying, with an absolute packed stand as opposed to uh, scattered people. And, you know, it's easier for Pete and I. So let's go through some extensions. DC, Takalahi, he re-signs in DC. So one of your stars from this year coming back for another run. Zach Godfrey and Val Lilo. I thought Val Lilo, probably one of the form players in the comp, Pete, uh, especially for a guy who's come through some ACLs and battled back. Hasn't played much rugby since 2016, but he was outstanding. We talked to Coach Healy a few weeks ago. He agreed as well, one of his stars down there. Uh, Cara Pryor, a uh, big name going to New York. A lot of people down in New Zealand will know the name Cara Pryor. Kirkland Hamilton, Nyack Boy re-signs, as does Charlie Hewitt and uh, Evan Minturn. Anyone jump out there for you, Pete? Um, well, I think um, you're right about Carl Pryor um, and also about Lilo. I, I, I think one of the interesting things, and it builds on what um, John talked about, is how New York's doing their signings, like on social media. I think it's like 3 p.m. and Every they're day, creating yeah. a bit of a buzz and they're like, you know, refresh and come back and check. And I think that's exactly the sort of idea about this is about entertainment. Right. And I think this goes all the way back to when, um, you know, the, I, I first started doing commentating on, on uh, um, uh, MLR. Um, you know, I, I was told uh, by um, Dean Howes, the, the commissioner, he said, we will not survive if we only have rugby fans that follow MLR. 
right? There's just not enough rugby fans in America. We need new fans. And I think doing things like New York is doing on their social media around their announcement is really playing that entertainment card. And I think we need to do more of that. And I think the more that the teams do that, the better off they'll be. Yep, I agree with you, man. Let's, let's look at some signings. The Gilgronies get Robbie Kutsi from down in South Africa, has some super rugby experience. He'll start at hooker there. Uh, so, again, building in that front row, which is a big part of it. Dallas. Oh, Dallas. Why, why do you sign the Fijians with these names? It just hurt my head so much trying to read them. Uh, Vasa Rakuta and uh, Tuidraki Samusamu Vaudre. They come over. That wasn't too bad, was it? Oh, it wasn't too bad. Yeah, you would never get you. Vince would never allow that, would he, John? He'd be like, absolutely not. Can, can you spell it without looking down? That's right. <laughs> it's like some of the some of the, the Samoan descent boys. They're like, "What's your name?" And you know, no, that's not happening. Your name is going to be Rikishi from now on. You're going to argue <laughs> with me. But uh, Nola, and this one's huge. This one to me is probably one of the best players we've seen in Major League Rugby. Is JP Duplessis. And this was a big trade done by Ryan Fitzgerald down at Nola there to get him over from San Diego. I'm not sure San Diego knew that Marnonu was going to Toulon when they yep. this trade, but uh, they lose both their centers in the same week, which is huge. So JP Duplessis goes to Nola, and I think he's just going to fit in perfectly with Nate Osborne in that back line down there. So that's a huge. Yeah, one. I mean, I mean, I think the Nola have had probably one of the um, best ball playing backlines in the league. Like every single one of their players could probably play fly half in their back line. Um, lots of really, really good ball players. But what they've really missed is, is a real physical presence. And I think um, JP at 12, being able to really get over the game line. I mean, he's much more than that. He's probably one of the best players over the ball at the breakdown. I mean, the guy's good for a couple of um, turnovers a game. I think, it's a big, I think it's a big opportunity for Nola. And I agree with you. I think that, um, you know, that was probably made by San Diego when they thought they still had Ma Nonu. Um, but there's not much you can do when Toulon come with um, uh, a bag of money. Tough to... Checkbook. Tough to even if it is San Diego, Toulon's not too bad, right? In the south of France. So it's another good place to go and spend the, go and spend the winter. Yeah, that is. New York pick up Quinn Naguadi uh, from the... Are they or aren't they defunct Toronto Wolfpack? We're not sure. So he was up there playing in the, uh, the Super League, the English Super League Rugby League up there. So that's a good sign. He's a good young Canadian player. So I think it's great to have him back in the 15-a-side game and he'll do good things in New York. Cecil Africa. Most fans will know Cecil from the uh, World 7 Series with the Blitzbok. He comes over to San Diego. So, you know, you're replacing some power with some pace there. And uh, Bjorn Besson as well, also from Super Rugby, but both outside back. So that midfield is, uh, is still yet to be filled or... You think they'll use local talent? What do you think, Pete? You've got yeah, I mean, I think I, I would guess that we might see. You know, most of the teams by now have their rosters pretty set, and so I think the um, it's. I, I don't think. I mean, San Diego actually is one of the few places that actually has local talent. Like the quality of club rugby there is high enough that they might be able to do it. But it wouldn't surprise me to, for them to you know pull up one more overseas player if they can for their, for their midfield. I actually think that Cecilia Africa is a great pickup for them. I think um, a dynamic runner on the outside. I think they have, they have a lot of really good outside players, but they don't really have anyone that's kind of a pure finisher. And um, I think that he could be that for them. Mm. John, your thoughts on those signings? Anyone jump out to you? 
No, uh, what jumps out to me, though, is the signings as an aggregate. You know, the, the, you have such a sports bonanza right now going on in the United States. And I think what MLR is going to be able to learn from is what happens with COVID testing as far as the NFL, college football, uh, Major League Baseball, and NBA. And I think the spot that uh, MLR is going to be in, because right now you're going to be lost as far as the news. All these signings to me are great signings. You're going to be lost in the news because you got your NBA championship right now. you got Major League Baseball playoffs. College football is starting to play again, and the NFL is in the middle of her season. But once this is done, this incredible sports bonanza in the United States, which we've never seen before, you're going to have that dearth of sports <laughs> starting in the spring. And that's been the whole idea of Major League Rugby to start with was that there's this void, especially of contact sports in the spring. So getting all these signings done now, I don't think they're going to do a lot as far as helping, as far as publicity, because you're not going to get your fans that are outside of your rugby hardcore guys because of how much sports are out there right now, a political cycle. But once that's done, rugby is pretty much going to own the spring, or they certainly have the opportunity to. Yeah, I agree. 100%. 100%. Well, signings are done. Let's finish with some more wrestling. What do you say, mate? Let's just jump back into the wrestling. Biggest, biggest bump you've ever taken. What, what have you ever been in a, in a match and you've taken a bump and you're like, my God, that one hurt more than it was supposed to. What, what shook you up the most? Yeah, I was in a cage match with uh, Chris Benoit in, uh, I think, Green Bay. And I caught a German suplex off the top rope, which they take you and they throw you over their head and off the top rope. I haven't seen anybody do it since. The people may have done it, but there's, <laughs> there's a good reason for it. It seemed like a great idea at the time. And I remember Nick Patrick, the referee, asked me, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not. And as soon as the match is over, I thought I was fine. So Randy Orton had just started in the business. And I said, hey, Randy, I'm flying back with Vince to to New York on the company plane. Do you want my hotel room? And I've already paid for it. He said, yeah, thank you very much. So I gave it to him. Two days later, I thought I was perfectly fine. National Rent-A-Car called me and they said, do you realize you left your car at the arena? It's been wrecked. (laughs) No, I had no idea. (laughs) So apparently I wasn't quite as good as I thought I was. Oh, I didn't wreck it, by the way. I, it wasn't so bad that I wrecked it, but I did forget the car. Somebody had backed into it or something. It's probably Randy. Yeah, some of those bumps, the keys uh, too. back in the day, which uh, seemed like such good ideas, probably weren't such good ideas. No. Best match, in your opinion, that you've ever had? Which one that you've walked out of the ring and you're like, yep, yeah, I left it all in there. I'm really proud of that. Uh, pay-per-view. It was no mercy at the Meadowlands with The Undertaker. We're about to go on an overseas trip, and I literally I came out looking like a raccoon. I had two black eyes. I had stitches down the middle of my head. It was the most physical thing I'd ever been involved in, and it was just extraordinary. I, I just thought that was – I really couldn't do a match probably any better than that. Really what proud about- what about the one you've watched? Like, I imagine that the, the backstage is similar to a locker room. Even though you're fighting against each other, you're really a team. Like, you're, you all want to put on a good show, a good performance. So it's probably more of a team feel than most people would imagine. What's one where you've been backstage and you've been watching and been like, what, like that's, that's the greatest match I've ever watched? No doubt about it. WrestleMania, I believe, is 25 down in Houston, Texas. I had to retire because of injuries. So all I could do is really get to the ring, and I lost the Intercontinental Championship, I think, in like 23 seconds to Rey Mysterio, and I retired and quit afterwards in a big huff, you know. And, uh, but that was all I could do to get to the ring because I was injured, and I, I just thought I could get this one last match out. That's about it. I could only go about 20 seconds because my back was so bad at the time. And I came back, and before I left, because I was really kind of disappointed and sad. You know, I didn't want my career to end. My career ended for me instead of me wanting to 
choose the time when my career ended. And I thought, well, I'll watch uh, Undertaker and Shawn Michaels wrestle this match. I just wrestled Shawn Michaels at the previous pay-per-view, and now he's wrestling Undertaker at WrestleMania. And I remember watching that match and, and thinking, it's time to retire. That's the greatest thing I will ever say. I've never seen anything like that. That was just poetry. That was freaking Michelangelo to, to, to us in the business. Yeah. So, so Dan and I talk about this all the time. Like we watch the games now. We watch Major League Rugby, and we just sort of shake our head and we're like, "Did, did we ever really do this? Is that how you feel when you watch? Like you watch it now, and you're like, did I ever? Like, like would you, would you be willing to step back into the ring? Like if your body could do it, or are you sort of like, you know, um, like no, that's it. Like I can't even believe I did that back then. Yeah, I don't really have the option because my I don't think my body would allow me to do it. Uh, but so I, I don't really know the true answer to this because right when I look at it now, I go, oh, my goodness, that'd be fun to be in the ring and be part of that. But then – but I don't really have the option, so it's not a real fault in my head. Right. No, probably not. I look at what some of these guys do now. It's athleticism beyond what I dreamed of. And I look at it and go, you know what? <laughs> it's best for these young kids just to, just to do this. I first did commentary back in 2005, right when I first retired. And I, I don't think I was a very good commentator. I may not have been later either, but at the time I was too close to the business. I still wanted to be in the ring. Now when I do commentary, I just call it as the old guy that's watching a match as a fan. And I really enjoy the commentary now because of that, that viewpoint. Yeah. I actually enjoy, I enjoy your commentary as well because it's a very different commentary to what Pete and I do in rugby, right? Like you've got a role to play within your commentary. You still have to commentate, but you also have a role to play as a bad guy still. Like, you know, and that's difficult. I think Bobby the, Bobby the Brain was my favorite. Oh, Bobby the Brain Heenan was a genius. Oh. Absolute genius in everything he did. The, the best of all time by far. Nobody's even close. They talk about the greatest commentators. They're really talking about who is second because yeah. Bobby Heenan is so far in front. My, and, and I went through two evolutions of a fan. So there was the kid with the Hogans and all that stuff when I was a little kid. And then the Attitude Area, which you were a part of, which yeah. was like, to my day, the Halcyon, you know, it's, it's the golden era of wrestling still. And uh, I'll never forget when uh, the Rockers split up and he throws Janetti through the window and Bobby the Brain goes, what a coward. He tried to jump through the window to escape. <laughs> and I, as a kid, was so mad. I'm like... He didn't try to jump. He went, but like, what a great role from him. And then watching it as an adult, just thinking in that moment, that's so brilliant. Like, I don't know if he scripted that or he just off the top I of his head. He didn't script anything. He was just pure 100% ad lib. He was that fast. He was just, his mind went 100 miles an hour while all the rest of us went 50. It, it, was, it was that big a difference in how glib he was and how fast he was. And you talk about the attitude area. You know, this is what Peter was talking about earlier. You know, rugby to grow has to get beyond just the rugby fans. And it's about when he's talking with D house about it'll never succeed. If it's just rugby, we weren't going to succeed if we're just wrestling fans. It's when stone cold, Steve Austin gets hot. And the rock gets hot. Now all of a sudden the father of four takes his boys and his daughters to the wrestling events a couple times a year. And all of a sudden now the arenas are full. The pay-per-views are all being sold. It's because of that extra that's come about because of these huge stars. Yeah, I agree. Do you think a, a Monday Night Wars style, you know, rugby would work? Or you just don't think that wrestling was just in just a far more advanced position, a competitive... I've never seen anything like the Monday Night Wars again. You know, to go yeah. to live TV shows 
and a zero sum outcome was going to be the outcome. One person was going to go bankrupt and one person was going to go out of business. You know, it's like SNL having a competitor on Saturday night and knowing that, okay, whoever wins this is going to end up with Saturday night. The loser is going to be out of a job. It was just an incredible time in history. I don't know if it'll ever be replicated. I hope it is because it was certainly a fun time for the fans. Oh, yeah. I mean, looking back, it was and, – and I was very much on the WWE side of things. I didn't even watch WCW because it just wasn't my jam. But I remember at high school – I was in high school during that, and we would have fights at school, like little fist fights over which wrestling you'd watch. You got that so – we'd be on the high jump mat, and you'd do something, and, you know, and you'd do a move, and you'd call it one thing. And then all of a sudden, a fight would break out. You're like, no, that's – he stole that. You know, I'll tell you an interesting story. They called it the Montreal Screwjob when Bret Hart was up at the Survivor Series, and Bret – did not want to lose the title to Shawn Michaels. And he wanted, he said he'd lose it to anybody but Shawn. Vince McMahon wanted to lose it to Shawn. And then in the ring, as, as you know, according to everything that's, <laughs> that's happened, uh, the referee screwed Bret Hart and said he submitted when he didn't submit and made Shawn the champion. Well, during that time, Bret went down to WCW. I think he, he, he punched Vince. I think he broke his hand when he punched Vince. I know he punched Vince. I know that for a fact. But I think he broke his hand so he couldn't go on TV right away. And Vince McMahon became the evil Vince McMahon. And because of that character, WCW was killing us, cleaning the board with us. They brought in Mike Tyson. They brought in the evil Vince McMahon. And about three months later, right after WrestleMania, just a few weeks after, we beat him for the first time in the ratings all because of, well, Stone Cold Steve Austin had a lot to do with it, but that Mr. McMahon character certainly helped win that war for us, and that was just pure luck that happened because of that Montreal screw job, they call it. Yeah, and that is obviously the, the deep, the deep state uh, still say that that was one of the biggest plots he ever did, that him and Brett didn't actually have that altercation. It was planned all along, and that was how it went, right? I, I don't know. I can tell you I was there. That happened. That happened. <laughs> 100% that happened. No. All right, you got to guess. This is going to be the last one, and then we'll let you go. We know you're busy. Pete, is he a heel or a face if he wrestled? And then what would his character be like? <laughs> oh, there's, no, there's no doubt about it. Pete would be a heel. And the reason is because Pete – no, the reason is because Pete's a smart guy. You all – you want – the heels are always your best guys. They always say in wrestling, it's an old axiom backstage, the, the bad guys are really the good guys. The good guys are really the bad guys. Because the good guys are prima donnas. They love to have their hair fixed. They're, they don't worry about camera angles. The bad guys just love to have fun, and they're the ones that have to carry the good guys. So they have to oh, be the – Oh, my God. That's like this podcast. That's, <laughs> I'm on the podcast. I get it now. It no follow-up questions then. No follow-up questions. <laughs> <laughs> B would be a heel, and he'd be a great one. What would your finishing move be, Pete? What would you end it with? What would I end it with? Yeah, analysis uh, to the death. I would, I, I, I would end it with, with, with a very, very like strong, sarcastic comment. You talk me, talk me to sleep. <laughs> well, John, you are an absolute legend, mate. Good luck and congratulations again on the Hall of Fame. Looking forward to that next year when you'll go in in twenty twenty one. Uh, and obviously your involvement with rugby, we appreciate everything you're doing, not only at the youth level, but also now uh, as you start to get more involved uh, with Major League Rugby as well. A massive asset to have to the code here in the US. And uh, I think I speak for everyone here. We, we are greatly appreciative of you taking not only a look at rugby, but staying involved and pushing the rugby story here in the US, mate. 
it's a terrific sport, and the rugby family has embraced me, which I am very thankful for. They just certainly didn't have to do that, and I'm as grateful uh, as anybody in the world because of that. So thank you very much. Enjoyed your love your podcast. Hoping I didn't talk too much, but uh, I get excited when talking about rugby and wrestling. Those are the two things I love the most. Yeah, you got me. You got me on those two as well. And then, uh, so we're going to do a clothesline from hell on Pete Steinberg at the first Old Glory game on CBS next year. So we'll line him up. <laughs> At the halfway line, and you let rip, brother. You got one more in you? I got about one more in me. I always say I'm saving it for Byron Saxon. Pete, that's the new young commentator now that uh, he put up a sign that said, JBL's my dad one time. So I just, I don't, I only have about one or two close eyes left. So one of them's for Byron. Just waiting for the right time. One for that's Byron, right. one for Pete. All right, legend. Appreciate you joining on. Uh, and then we'll, I'm sure we'll catch up again once the season kicks off and we're back out there in D.C. Thanks, guys. John Layfield, Pete Steinberg, our producer, Aaron Kasher. I'm Dan Power. This has been the MLR Kickoff Podcast. Remember to shop at shopmlr.com, powered by The Rugby Shop, for all your Major League Rugby apparel needs.